After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I'm with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. As we get into God's word here, would you just pray with me real briefly? Oh, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight? And Lord, would you come and be here, dwell with us, among us, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, and let your spirit have his way in our hearts here this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again, and happy Father's Day, because I, I, I was outside for a while. I don't know if I missed that being said earlier, but happy Father's Day to all you dads and grandpas and prospective dads out there. And in case it's not on your radar screen, I also want to wish everybody a happy Juneteenth as well, because that is today, June 19th. Um, it's a day that's very worth celebrating, important for us to celebrate, not only for our African-American brothers and sisters, but for all of us who long to see the freedom and the life of the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. So I'll have something to say about that a little bit later, but I just wanted to say that now. So in addition to those two names of today, this also happens to be the second Sunday of a season of the year that we call Ordinary Time. It's the unspecial liturgical season. So it's not Advent, it's not Christmas, it's not Lent, it's not Easter. It's uh, a period of time that comes after those things. It's the other half of the Christian year. It's got no particular holidays in it. However, that doesn't really make it unspecial. Ordinary time is the season that follows Easter and then Pentecost, and it's a season where 
we keep on remembering and we keep on living out the reality that Christ is risen, that he's reigning on the throne of the universe, and he has sent his spirit to dwell in us and with us and among us as a church. It's the season that's all about a long obedience in the same direction, living out God's mission for us in particular. It's a season of the year when we do what Wendell Berry, the poet and the author, calls practicing resurrection. We seek the things and we seek to do the things that bring renewal and repair to the world. And we happen to have come to a place in the book of Acts, to a passage here this morning that is, I think, a really great passage for us to practice resurrection through. So Libby just read the first half of Acts chapter 18 for us. And just to kind of reorient everybody to where we are as we've been going through Acts, Paul has now completed about a year and a half of his second missionary journey. Most recently, he was in Athens. Brandon preached about that last week. And uh, Paul was there introducing the gospel to sort of the intellectual elite of the day, the philosophers and the, the academics and the scholars. And now he's, he's done there and he travels a short distance to the city of Corinth. And if you know the New Testament, you know that this is a city that becomes very important and his trip here becomes very important. This is the trip where he plants the church that will later be the recipients of his letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, in our passage today, the center of gravity is verse 9 and Jesus' words to Paul in this vision that he gives him in the night where he says, Paul, do not be afraid, but keep on speaking. Don't be silent. As we've been reading the book of Acts up to this point, it's, it's probably been a little bit tempting, it is for me, to see Paul as kind of this Marvel superhero or Jedi master of the early church. He's, he's this guy who is unafraid of even the most dangerous situations, and he goes in and he makes it happen. So, why would Jesus give him this curious command right now not to be afraid and to keep on speaking? Well, we need to keep in mind that Paul was actually not a superhero. He was a human being, just like the rest of us. Now, he was certainly gifted with personality and with skill, and Acts tells the story of his special calling by God and his filling with the Holy Spirit to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul is still just a dude. Think back on the different kinds and degrees of persecution and hardship Paul has already had to endure just in the part of Acts that we have read so far. In Acts chapter 9, as soon as he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and becomes a Christian, when he gets there, he starts preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and that brings down the ire of the Jewish leaders, and they try to kill him. In Acts chapter 13, another local synagogue, or leaders from another local synagogue, stir up a mob when he preaches Jesus, and they run him out of town. In Acts 14, the same thing happens again in both Iconium and Lystra, even to the point of Paul being stoned and left for dead. In Acts 16, he's beaten and he's thrown into jail for liberating this girl who is being trafficked and is spiritually oppressed and he's thrown into prison in Philippi. And then in Acts 17, before he gets to Athens, there's a mob in Thessalonica who attacks 
his hosts, the, the people, the Christians that he's been staying with, and they extort money from them because they've been helping Paul. So he's endured a lot. And now he's in Corinth. Corinth was a Roman colony, and it was the key city of this region. It was this super prosperous city. It was a port city, a major port in the area, kind of the crossroads of east-west travel on the Mediterranean. It had around 200,000 people living in it at this time. And all of this made Corinth a strategic location for planting a church and for bringing the gospel to the Mediterranean world. It was going to be a place that had a lot of influence. But Corinth was also a notoriously difficult city. It was home to a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, and worship of Aphrodite produced a culture of immense debauchery in this city. One ancient author called Corinth a place where only the tough survive. And another contemporary author calls it the Vegas of its time. Now, I've been to Vegas one time in my life, and it was two, I'm sorry, two weeks ago. We were on our family vacation out to Seattle, and we had a nine-hour layover in Las Vegas. And we were not going to sit in the airport for nine hours, let me tell you. So we decided to go out and see some of the sights and everything. And it's impressive. There's a lot to see there, a lot of glitter. But there, it has earned the nickname Sin City for a reason. It is well-deserved. And I, I saw plenty of things there that I wish I hadn't seen. I also saw things there that were just dark and dreary. The, the addiction and the despair that was written on so many faces, both people who lived there, but also people who were probably visiting there, it, was just, it hung very heavy. Now, I feel a little bad saying this because we have a person in our church, James Piscasio, who is a native of Las Vegas, and James is not here this morning to defend his hometown's honor, so I feel like I should do a little bit for him. It's actually not all that way. It's, it's, it was really a nice place. We encountered some lovely locations, some lovely people, including some bus drivers who let us ride for free because we couldn't get our act together. But anyway, James, if you're watching on camera, I apologize. Vegas is a wonderful spot. Corinth, however, was a different story. And so Paul has this history of very strong opposition against him, and now he's in this cosmopolitan culture of Corinth. (laughs) And those things have to be on his mind as he is entering the city to start preaching the gospel there, and he's only human. And that forms, I think, an understandable background for what Jesus says to him in verse 9 don't be afraid. Keep on preaching. Don't be silent. And Jesus' promise includes more than just that too. Like other instances of God's command not to be afraid in Scripture, this one comes with words of compassion and it comes with supply for what Paul really needs. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Keep on preaching for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many people in this city. The category that I'd like for us to use this morning to describe what Paul is, is asked to be about here is faithful witness. I think that's what we would call this, is faithful witness. Jesus has called and commissioned the Apostle Paul to be his faithful witness, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And he's living that out. He's going into all the world. He's preaching the gospel. He's practicing resurrection, in Wendell Berry's words. As I read this story, I'm left with a question that's both exciting and sort of nerve-wracking at the same time. 
Paul is being a faithful witness. And I know that this is being shown to us not just to look at Paul and say, hey, what a great guy he is, but we're invited into the same thing. What does it take to be a faithful witness for Jesus? Because as we read the book of Acts, we're not just reading history. We're, we're reading this to be moved to worship Jesus and to follow him. And the road that we're following him on is a road of faithful witness. And so what we, need, we need to know this. What does it take to be a faithful witness? When we look at Jesus' words to Paul in the context of this whole story, I think there are three things that we can see here. And here's where we're going to go today for those of you who like to have a roadmap ahead of time. To be a faithful witness for Jesus, it takes three things. Presence, protection, and people. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. Presence, protection, and people. Let's start by looking at presence here. The heart of Jesus' promise is this mind-blowing fact that's at the center of the gospel. In the person of Jesus Christ, the one true God, the creator God, kept his ancient promise to undo the curse of sin and to establish his kingdom on earth by coming to be with his people. The Gospel of Matthew starts out by telling us Jesus' nickname, if you will, his symbolic name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then that very same Gospel, Matthew, it ends in chapter 28 with the Great Commission where Jesus sends his followers out into the world to make disciples of all nations, and he does it saying, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That promise unfolds further with Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and then the coming of that Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit was God's gift, his own indwelling presence, empowering his disciples to be his faithful witnesses to the ends of the earth. And all of this is looking forward to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, when every nation, tribe, and tongue is represented in the new heavens and the new earth. And in that place, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. They will be his people, he will be their God, and he will dwell with them. God's presence is the foundation of our faithful witness. It's foundational because that is what addresses our fears about being his faithful witnesses. The reason that Paul shouldn't be afraid right now as he continues preaching in Corinth is not that he's going to be wildly successful. It's not even that he's going to be kept safe from harm, even though Jesus does say that, and that's an important point that we're going to get to. The core reason that Paul can be fearless in his proclamation of the gospel is that God is with him. And God will not forsake him. Jesus tells Paul, don't be afraid, keep on preaching, for I am with you. The same thing holds true for us. We might have any number of fears about the idea of being faithful witnesses for Christ in our, our culture, in our world today. And some of those fears may run very deep. We might be afraid of not having the right words. We might fear like looking like a fool. We might fear damaging or even losing relationships that are very close to us. We might fear that we're going to be seen as 
racist or homophobic or misogynistic. We might fear that we're somehow going to bring disrepute on the name of Jesus. And the list just goes on and on. You can have any fear. Well, in just over a month, end of July and into August, we are going to do a new spiritual formation uh, sermon series on the subject of preaching the gospel as a, as a discipline in our lives. And we're going to talk a lot more about fears that we have surrounding that idea. But for now, it's enough for us to cling on to this truth that will always be true. Jesus' faithful presence with us is the reason why we can be faithful witnesses. So there's an invitation for us here. It's, it's more than just, hey, church, believe this. Like, just know this in your head. God promises his presence is going to be with us. And so if we believe that promise, or even if that belief is kind of flickering inside us in some way, we want it to be, we, we want to believe it, we want, to be, want it to be true, then we have an invitation. And it's an invitation to look for God's presence. It's to expect him to be there and to open our eyes to see it and to become aware of the places and the ways that God is at work. When it comes to sharing the gospel with other people, we're looking for evidence of God's movement in that other person's life. How did, how did their conversations and their questions to you reveal an openness to God that's in their life that you might be able to come into in some way? Where do you sense a restlessness or a dissatisfaction or even a boredom in their life that could be a sign of God showing them how their old ways of living are just not working for them anymore. They're not doing it. Where are they experiencing pain that might be God's megaphone to them, God shouting at them that he's real and he's reaching out to them? You know, we don't have to be actively looking for some evangelistic opportunity in order to practice this discipline or this, this invitation to notice God's presence. The invitation here is simply to grow in our awareness of how God makes himself present in life. Anywhere and any way we can do that trains us to be more keen observers of his presence and his work in the lives of our non-Christian friends when we eventually have that opportunity. And so here's a question to just kind of jumpstart this practice for you if you need that help. What is it that helps you personally become aware of God's presence? For starters, I would just suggest the, the practices, the spiritual disciplines that are in our community rule of life. Things like silence and solitude and reading scripture, self-examination, keeping the Sabbath. As you do these, these very basic things, they start to train you to recognize God's voice, to recognize how God speaks, how God moves. But on top of those things, maybe there are other practices that are personal to you, things that really go with the grain of your personality and how God has made you, how he's wired you, that help you to know his voice more personally to you? Do you connect with God through powerful experiences of worship? Do you love to be out in nature and encounter God in the world that he's made? Do you often get a strong sense of him speaking through scripture or maybe a strong sense of him when you are caring for the poor and the marginalized in some way. Again, you know, there are many different ways as there are people that God can be speaking and making himself known. These things might not lead directly to some outreach opportunity or evangelistic conversation. <clears throat> but they help you 
to know Jesus personally, to know what he's like, to know how he tends to make himself present to you. And as you grow in that, you'll start to recognize him in the lives of other people. His presence is the foundation of our faithful witness. So building on that foundation, the next part of Jesus' message here to Paul focuses on protection. Protection is the promise that God gives to us, the promise that we need to be his faithful witnesses. Verse 9 echoes a lot of other places in Scripture. It's the same command and promise that God has been making to his people all along, a promise not only of his presence being with us, but also of his protection through that presence. Deuteronomy 31, as Israel is looking ahead to finally entering the promised land after all their wanderings, the Lord says through Moses, don't be afraid of the Canaanites who are there because I will go with you. The idea is that I'm going to fight for you. I will defend you. Joshua 1, with all those battles about to begin, the Lord tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid for the Lord your God is with you. Again, the idea is to protect him. Isaiah chapter 43 and chapter, I'm sorry, chapters 41 and 43, God tells his people who are now exiled to Babylon, fear not, for I am with you. The idea is that I'm going to protect you in this place where you are not at home. This is what God says to his people when he's making his mission advance in the face of opposition. In Acts 18, he makes explicit for Paul what had just been implicit in those Old Testament passages. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. I will not let harm come to you. But there's the rub, right? Is that what he's really promising? That he's not going to let harm come to us? It's one thing to trust that God's going to be present with us. It's another thing to additionally trust that he won't let harm come to us. Do we trust that? Don't answer that question too quickly. Consider what your way of living reveals about your level of trust that God will not let harm come to you. And really, to answer that question, we need to talk about what God's promised protection is and what it is not. And let's start for right now with what it's not. God's protection is not a thing that we earn, like a shield that we get to you know, buy from the God store after we've already been a faithful witness for him. That would sort of be like the idea of God saying, okay, church, as long as you're effective in your evangelism, bringing in new converts, I got your back. But you know what? If your numbers start to drop, that's it. It's a mob beating for you. That's not how God works. God's protection is not a tactic that he uses for using us as pawns in his cosmic chess game. That would be like a God who says, okay, you're useful to me for the moment, but that's all. And as soon as you're a liability, I'm going to sacrifice you without a second thought. That's not who God is. God's protection is not, is not against all harm of all kinds at all times. That should be pretty obvious to, to us already from our own lives, but also from Paul's life. Just his story in Acts shows that that's not true. In Acts 9, Jesus, Jesus even says to Paul, or of Paul, He is my chosen instrument to bring my word to the Gentiles. I will show him how much he will suffer from my name. If that is not what God's promised protection is, what is it? 
God's protection that he promises to give us is preserving us from ultimate spiritual harm. It's keeping us from temptation that would otherwise overwhelm us. That's the meaning of deliver us from evil in the Lord's Prayer. It's the flip side of that lead us not into temptation. This isn't a prayer that we would be cushioned in safety from anything bad or painful ever happening, but that God would keep us from spiritual harm, that he keep our feet following his path, that he keep us from temptation that's too great for us. And so his protection is preserving us from spiritual harm in the situations where we need that to, to happen. That means that his protection often is, and it is in this story, surrounding us with what we need, equipping us with what we need to accomplish the kingdom mission that God has given to us to do. In Acts 18, it meant that Paul would be preserved from physical harm and imprisonment, at least right now, so that he could preach for a year and a half and found one of the key churches of the New Testament. Now, that would not necessarily be the case everywhere else. Sometimes, like in Lystra and Philippi, Paul's faithful witness is going to come precisely through being attacked and imprisoned or left for dead. Again, God's protection is not just a tactic to get something out of us. It's not that he's so fixated on his mission that he doesn't care about what happens to us. And he doesn't force us into his mission. He invites us. He calls us. He woos us. He shapes and forms our hearts as he speaks and as we respond to his voice so that his mission becomes our mission. We adopt it. His purposes become our purposes. His desires become our desires. And so God's protection is allowing us to bear only what he knows we can endure for the sake of his purposes that our hearts have become in tune with. So there's a simple invitation for us here as well. It's practicing the Lord's Prayer. This is both a particular prayer that we can pray again and again in our lives, and it's a general pattern of prayer that makes our hearts and minds more like Jesus. Now, if you grew up in a church tradition, I know many of you did, where the Our Father was a thing that you said sort of by rote, almost like take two and call me in the morning, it may take some unlearning of that way of doing prayer before this will become meaningful again. Actually, it may take some unlearning for all of us, regardless of what our church background has been. The Lord's Prayer recenters and re-anchors us on who God is and on what God does. The point is not to make it mechanical for us, but to make this an active and familiar prayer for us where we are actually engaging in conversation with God. Rather than us working and reworking the words of this prayer, it gets worked into us. And more and more, we will share the values and the perspectives of God's kingdom, including what it means to be delivered from evil. So we need God's presence as the foundation of our faithful witness. We need his protection as the promise for that faithful witness. And finally, we see that we need Jesus' people as a community of faithful witness. We have to zoom out and take in this whole passage that we read today in order to see this well. And really, it's the message of the entire book of Acts. For as much attention as Paul gets as sort of the missionary hero, he is never alone in his ministry, right? He was an individual faithful witness, 
but always in the context of a community of faithful witnesses. As Acts 18 tells the story, it might be helpful for us to think of this in terms of three directions or three vantage points that we could have in faithful witnessing. There's witnessing from above, there's witnessing side to side, and there's witnessing from below. We're going to talk about each of these briefly. First of all, faithful witness from above. We could just think of it as handing down the faith. Other parts of Scripture talk about it that way. Witnessing from above means speaking or demonstrating the gospel to someone who isn't as far along in their, spirit, in their spiritual journey. And often that could be a non-Christian. It can mean preaching in a public and formal way, maybe a little bit like what I'm doing right here, but that is honestly the smallest percentage of the kind of teaching that we are called to do as faithful witnesses. It's what we do when we become mentors and disciplers of younger people. And sometimes that means literally younger people, but it doesn't have to be. It just means a spiritually younger person, someone not as far along in their spiritual journey. Now, to be teaching or to be a faithful witness from above is never, ever an excuse to be arrogant or certainly to be abusive in the leading and the teaching that we're doing. In fact, I think to be a faithful witness means that we embody the message of the gospel in a way that demonstrates the character of Christ to the people that we are teaching it to. This is the kind of ministry, the kind of faithful witness that we are most familiar with Paul doing when we see him in action in ministry. Kind of like he was here with Crispus, the synagogue leader. Maybe also with Sosthenes as well in verse 17. We'll talk about him in a minute. Paul is delivering this content about Jesus and its implications for real life to people who had not yet heard or to those who were still very new to it. So that's faithful witness from above. Second, there's this idea of witnessing side to side. This is about the relationships and the people with whom we are shoulder to shoulder partnering together for the sake of the gospel. Paul was an absolute master at this. It's what he does in befriending and living with, working with, ministering alongside other people as co-laborers. And here we see it so well with Aquila and Priscilla. They already seem to be followers of Jesus by the time Paul meets them here in Acts, and he quickly finds that they share his heart for bringing the gospel to people who have not heard it before. And so since he's brand new to Corinth, doesn't really know anybody here, he stays with them. And then, because they happen to have some of the same skills, the same trade, they go into business together to finance their evangelistic ministry out there in the city of Corinth. Now, you might be familiar with the term tent making. This is where that comes from. Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul are tent makers. They make tents and they sell them. That's how they have income to minister there in Corinth. And let's not forget about Silas and Timothy who show up from Macedonia in verse 5. Silas, he's already shared ministry battle scars with Paul. He was in prison with him in Philippi. Timothy is like a spiritual son to Paul and has been following him all over the place. Together, these five people become a, a core of friendship. They're the seed of a community out of which Corinth begins to be reached and the Corinthian church is planted. That is what witnessing side by side looks like. It's not just good friendship and enjoying one another. It's friendship with a missional flame at its center. 
And then finally, there's this idea of witnessing from below. And this is where I want to spend just a little bit more time because I think we're most in need of this angle and direction and perspective for our faithful witnessing community. It's much easier to see and to celebrate and then to participate in witnessing from above and side to side. Those things are indispensable, but faithful witness from below in a community of faithful witnesses has the potential to be the most powerful way of doing it because of how it embodies Jesus' life and message. By witness from below, it doesn't just mean serving others, though that is important. We're called to serve each other, serve serve other people. We can and should be doing that from any of these vantage points. But the kind of serving that I'm talking about from below is a deeply sacrificial service that puts other people first and sometimes at great cost to ourselves. And here's the key. It's putting others before us so that those others in a community of faithful witnesses can be the ones sharing the gospel. As we do that, as we front and support those other voices and faces, we ourselves are becoming faithful witnesses to the gospel because we're putting ourselves second. We have a couple really good examples of it here in Acts 18. First, there's this guy Crispus in verse 8. We don't have any details here about what happened after he and his family believed, but based on the response of the synagogue, it's reasonable to assume that they were expelled from the Jewish community because they had become Christians. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul baptized Crispus. And in his baptism, in his profession of faith, Crispus probably had to sacrifice relationships and social standing in a way that gave Paul and his preaching a platform. The cost of Paul's ongoing ministry in Corinth was partially paid by Crispus in the rejection that he experienced. But enduring that enduring, that rejection actually makes him more like Jesus. And it made him more of a faithful witness from below in this community with Paul. The other example in this text might be a little bit harder to see, but I think it's still a very likely scenario. In verse 17, there's this guy named Sosthenes, and he's mentioned as another Corinthian synagogue leader. It could mean that he was a, like a co-leader with Crispus at the same time. Maybe other people were too. It could mean that he was the guy who sort of got put in Crispus's place after he got expelled. Either way, we don't really know. When this mob at the end of the passage doesn't get what they want from Gallio, a conviction on Paul, Sosthenes is the one that they take out their anger on. They beat him horribly right there in front of the Roman judge who does absolutely nothing about it. Do you see the contrast in this story? Jesus gives his promise of protection to Paul. No one will attack you or harm you. And then a few verses later, Sosthenes is attacked and harmed instead. Now, scholars are split on the question of whether Sosthenes had become a Christian himself by this point. At the very least, he's sympathetic to Paul and to the the Jewish Christians. Otherwise, he probably would have been in the mob too. But there's also this tantalizing little clue in 1 Corinthians. When Paul opens up that letter, 1 Corinthians, which is written to this church, filled with people who would have known this story. Some of them were probably even there that day in that mob. 
Paul says that this letter is coming from him and, very interestingly, somebody named Sosthenes. There's no way to know for sure if it's the same guy. But if it is the same guy, this is an incredible example of faithful witness from below. Sosthenes took a beating that he didn't deserve so that his community could continue its active and verbal witness. It doesn't seem like Sosthenes chose this as an act of self-sacrifice. It came to him. But in receiving an unjust punishment because of the gospel and receiving it in front of a Roman authority who basically washed his hands of it, Sosthenes looks an awful lot like Jesus in this story. Being a faithful witness from below does not necessarily involve physical harm for us all the time. But it does involve putting ourselves second or last so that other people in our community can be the faces and the voices of faithful witness at the right time. Now, this can be tricky in a couple of different ways. It can be tricky for those of us who already prefer to kind of stand back and just support while others take the lead in witnessing. But that would ignore the fact that we're all called to be faithful witnesses, sometimes to be the people out front sharing the gospel, sometimes to be the people side to side in direct relationship, helping the gospel to go forward. And really, it misunderstands what this idea of witness from below is. Witness from below may not involve literal death, but it does involve dying to ourselves. And sometimes we're called to die to ourselves by dying to the fear of telling the gospel to other people. Another way that this gets a little bit tricky is a way in which we actually have an immediate example of in life right now. I mentioned at the beginning that today, in addition to being Father's Day, is also June 19th, which is known as Juneteenth. This is the date that commemorates the end of slavery in the United States, when the official news of slaves' freedom finally reached the last frontier, the last of the former Confederate territories in Galveston, Texas. It was two full years after the Emancipation Proclamation, but finally the news was legally and publicly proclaimed throughout the country. This is a date that has held deep significance and meaning for African Americans at large, but for the black church in particular ever since that time, but has largely been ignored by the majority white church until recently. The very first celebration of Juneteenth was spearheaded by black churches on the first anniversary of that announcement. It started getting recognition as a state holiday in the 1970s. Actually, Texas was the first state to do it. And it became a day of more cultural significance through the 80s, the 90s, into the 2000s. It finally became a federal holiday last year, 2021, 156 years after the event itself. I bring this up because Christians of all colors, not just our black and brown brothers and sisters, should see this as a day of profound celebration. This is a second and fuller Independence Day where the promises of the 4th of July were made more real for our country. But it's also a day of great lament because we are not where we should be yet. Racism and white supremacy are still deeply ingrained in our country and our society, and the church has been complicit in that. 
undoing the legacy and bringing the fullness of justice, everything that that entails, that's way beyond the scope of the message here today. But this does provide for us an opportunity to demonstrate this faithful witness from below in a community of faithful witnesses. And here's what I mean. Where visible and vocal leadership is needed in sharing the good news about Jesus, white Christians like me can put ourselves second and we can elevate the witness of our brothers and sisters of color. We point to and we support their leadership. We allow the lives and the wisdom of black and brown Christians to become a bigger part of how we understand who we are as God's people and the mission that we're on together. For hundreds of years, those brothers and sisters have been the ones who are giving faithful witness from below already, sacrificing a lot. It's time for that to look different. And so there's an invitation for all of us here as well, and not specifically about Juneteenth, though that, that might be a place where you could focus some of your reflection. It, it's a practice that I'm just going to go ahead and call 360-degree witness. This is simply an invitation to take one step into one direction of witnessing community. If you can take two or three steps, maybe in multiple directions, that's great. I can probably only handle one at a time, so if you're like me, just stick with that. Is there a step that you can take to become more of a faithful witness from above? Is there a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor, a family member who is asking some tough questions about who Jesus is or about faith that you could engage with in some way? Maybe it's a question that you've had to wrestle with yourself or there's been something impactful in your life. It's not for you to come at it, you know, in some way as an expert somehow, but with compassion and with a desire to see this person take a step of faith toward Jesus. Or second, could you become a faithful witness side by side with others? Now, my sense is that this is probably the easiest one for us, especially here at SOMA. Not only are we a church that loves serving together, loves being together, but we thrive, we really do, when there is a sense of partnership and mission. Still, it's worth asking, is there a step that you could take to build that kind of community up even more? Is there a key friendship? Is there an Aquila or Priscilla for you that you need to invest in in some way? Can you call up an existing friendship to be more purposeful about sharing and demonstrating together the good news of Jesus? Or maybe third, it's this most challenging perspective. Is there a step that you can take to become a faithful witness from below? There is no doubt that opportunities exist for every one of us to move into that kind of realm because we can always be, we, we can always be second. We can always be last. Those will always be the most challenging to do. But ask yourself, honestly, where are you being called to put yourself second, to put yourself even dead last, even at great cost to yourself, so that the gospel of Jesus can be told and shown by others at the right moment. What does it take to be a faithful witness of Jesus? It takes the foundation of his presence. It takes the promise of his protection, and it takes the community of his people. And may that be true for us. We're going to close with prayer, and we're going to do it by practicing one of the things we talked about here, praying the Lord's Prayer together. 
And if you know it, I invite you to pray it with me. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.